I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and I'm honored to welcome again to our broadcast in a special podcast exclusive, Ninth Wonder. He is a musician, DJ, philosopher, musical impresario. Ninth, it's a pleasure to connect with you virtually. I'm sorry we're not in the studio together, but I did love our conversation when we had it a few years back. How you doing, man? I'm hanging in there. Um, I went back and read the transcript of our really interesting conversation and your really profound insights. And the most pressing question that I asked um, was not really related to the health or condition of society, although you might draw a connection to it, but it was whether Kanye was prostituting himself to Donald Trump as if, you know, we could live in a time when that was the height of our concerns um, it, unfortunately, it's not, um, but we have that there. Um, and the question I really wanted to ask you is this, this, this pandemic and the protest movement that it spawned in response to police brutality and the murders of Black Americans, did it expose an unraveling that was the reality, even when we spoke, you know, that, that while it's more magnified now, it was the reality a few years ago. It's the same reality that it was, it's just more exposed. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's exposed now because we, we are at a standstill enough to pay attention to it. We're not as busy as we once were. Um, before, you know, we have no choice but to sit and think about things, face ourselves, face our insides, face stuff that we never wanted to tackle about ourselves for a very long time. And as this country as a whole, racism has been that, you know, like racism has been, you know, with the pandemic and everything, like the pandemic has forced us to sit down and look at a lot of things about this country. And as musicians, it is up to us to continue to be creative enough to tell those stories through song because, you know, the 20th century, especially the last maybe 70 years of the 20th century, from 1930 all the way to 2000, a lot of particular movements or anything dealing with any type of disaster or anything, whether it be Vietnam or whatever it is, has always been coupled by a soundtrack and it's um up to, to up to us to make sure as musicians that we continue to tell stories of our people of the oppressed of everything you know to go along with what's going on right now because it's, it's therapy therapy for people you know i dj every night and um i've been told so many times that what you do is therapy for me it's therapy for me too um to be honest so that's, you know, this is an important, crucial time on so many levels. But as a musician, it's very important to us to make sure we provide the service of healing and message through our music. Ninth, do you think that for the celebrity culture, there is a wake-up call to galvanize more fully? One of the things we talked about on the broadcast in the past was the difference in styles of, of philosophy and 
engagement of those ideas. And someone like Chance, um, the rapper, and you know, a, a cohort that was rolling up its sleeves and getting to work. Now that's manifest in the protest movement, but I'm wondering if you get the impression that there is a, a mobilization uh, among musicians that there may not have been just a few years ago or even within the last, you know, before the pandemic hit. Yeah, I think so because, you know, now fans, the reason why it's, um, musicians are mobilizing now because they are understanding a lot of musicians who celebrated the party, so to speak, which is nothing wrong with that. The celebrated the party aspect of the party life or just having a good thing, whatever it is. A lot of people don't want to hear that right now. You know, they don't want to hear. This is not a good time to talk about how much money you have. And I don't care. And this, this expands past music. Like you said, the celebrities, this is also movies. Like people want to watch movies with more meaning to it because they're searching for something and trying to get through something. And I want to watch something that's very superficial because this is not a superficial time. This is a real time. So again, like I said, it's, it's up to us as musicians and even creators. Celebrities understand that this is a crucial time because you can't, this is not a time where you can be fake. And it's a time that you, you, you know, for a lot of celebrities that they have to show their real self if they've never shown it before. So this is it. This is a very vulnerable time for those celebrities to display that. Yeah. And and one of the areas where some athletic celebrities, basketball titans, uh, specifically LeBron, but some colleagues of his as well, have engaged in voting rights, and that of course is a really salient subject and necessary area of, of, of policy in. North Carolina, where you are today, uh, do you find that there is more animated activity and awareness around the importance of registering and voting this November? Yeah, I believe so. You know, once again, it all goes back to everything we do now so magnified because everybody, everybody's sitting at home looking at their phones. So they're really, really paying attention to everything that's going on. You know, social media is a, a huge catalyst in that, right? And also, you seeing it a lot also influences you to want to be a part of it. So let's just use for LeBron, for example. He's out here. He's making big statements. He's saying things. He's putting them online. That affects a multitude of basketball players, or that affects a multitude of athletes. Who's probably they probably thought they didn't have a voice to begin with. So that's a very positive aspect that he's having by doing what he's doing in this space, you know. So, and that's probably why it's magnified because now you see his influence trickling down to this player and this player, and now it's everywhere to everybody is being most socially aware, especially in the sports world. What would you say, Ninth, because you've been involved at the grassroots level as an educator, as a professor at NC State, at Duke, you're working at a local high school project now. Um, what is the most meaningful difference 
that we all can make in educating youth today in, in this particular moment, um, what would be most meaningful? To be more diverse in your research, to, to not be afraid to step outside your comfort zone. You know, learning about the past and learning, you know, researching the past. You know, some people, is the past they like to, you know, they quickly want to forget. They don't want to be attached to their past because some people, their past is not the most pleasant. And it makes them feel uncomfortable. Unfortunately, we live in, in the United States of America where our past is very uncomfortable. And so I think it's important for us to make sure that we educate our kids, our neighbors' kids or whatever, to go into the past and see where we got it wrong and how you can make it right. Um, that's, that's so huge because you can't learn if you don't have mistakes and we've made a lot of them throughout our country's history. But in studying that, you can now also learn how to make it right. So that's important for us to study our past that way. One of the things that was so concerning about what I called on our show, Kanye's prostitution to Trump, was this idea he was prostituting himself to someone who was embodying the Confederacy, embodying the vestiges of that horrible past, and specifically embodying the legitimization of the narrative that that past is history and we can neglect that past uh, and, and even we can expunge it from the record. And in fact, you know, our hardship uh, is, is as real as whatever hardship was experienced by let's be blunt, formerly enslaved people in this country. And right. of course you and I know, that's malarkey in the in the highest order. Um, and that's why what he did with with Trump was really unforgivable. I mean, I don't know if you agree with that, but it's it's hard to swallow and he would argue that his and Kardashian's advocacy of criminal justice reform might have mitigated some of the cultural damage he did. But when you give an olive branch to the vestiges of the Confederacy, then I, you know, I don't know how, had folks forgiven Kanye for that? I don't know. You know, I, I, I've known Kanye since 2003. Um, and he is a myriad of emotions, thoughts. He's a myriad of creativity, and he's also a myriad of controversy. This is, you know, whether you agree with him or not, the one thing I cannot ever deny him on, that he's not honest. Whatever he feels like he needs to do, he's gonna be honest with that. Whether you agree with him or not, he's gonna go full steam ahead with that idea do i think he's wrong i just think he's kanye like <laughs> what it is like and it shouldn't surprise like it's to the point where he's done a lot of things that people may not have liked but it, to me it's to the point it's like okay like i i've kind of sort of i've seen this before so it's not 
him getting with Trump wasn't as shocking to me as it was everybody else, maybe. Him putting on a Confederate flag, I knew when he put it on, I, I was thinking, now he's going to try to flip this and to use it something for positive. That's just what he does. So I'm, I don't, he's a talent, he's a genius, but I pretty much don't make that a focal point for me to see, put it like this, like, I know who my leader is or my leaders are to me, mm-hmm. who my high counsel is, who my person I look to for inspiration to see what they're doing to see how I can help. Kanye is not that for me. That doesn't mean he's a bad person. That doesn't mean he's not talented. That doesn't mean any of that. I'm just saying as far as looking at him and, you know, holding him accountable for what he's, you know, controversies caused with Trump or whatever, like, that's all well and fine, but he's not even a leader to me. He's a leader to some, he's a leader to a lot, but to me, he's not my direct point of counsel. So I don't even. Right. And and it seems like, and I didn't mean to harp on this. No, 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 no. It's it's, a soapbox. I I got it. No, no, I got it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, look. I've heard that a lot from a lot of people. You know? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think, you know, to your point, Ninth, you, you are your own North Star and we're, you know, not everyone can afford to, to kind of have that self-direction and leadership. Um, and, and you are that guide for a whole new generation of musicians and students. Uh, and, I, and I think to your credit, to Chance's credit, to others' credit, um, he, he, uh, you know, you, you are the future of the, this movement, um, which seems to be more expansive now in the wake of the pandemic and the protests. And by that, I mean, there, there is a new realization, um, of what black, black lives matter means, uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you're heartened by the, the progress just in the consciousness of the country mm-hmm. and think that's something that could be cultivated uh, or what, what would actually drive home that reality beyond just folks' realization, you know, this is not just some, some catchy slogan. Right. This is, you know, this is people's lives. You know, it's... And it's so uh, such a complicated conversation because it's I there's level of emotion and the level of anger when it comes to African Americans. We vary in those. But this is coming from me. Like I I know in knowing history that the term Black Lives Matter has showed up and not shown up in our history several different times in several different forms and several different names through several different people, whether it be Harriet Tubman, whether it be Malcolm X, whether it be Sojourner Truth, whoever it is, there's been so many people that have shown up with their version of what we now know as Black Lives Matter. And yet and still we, you know, and in some points we are still in the same space, but I do know that more heads have have turned now than ever more heads have turned 
to the idea of doing what's right and the idea of trying to make it right more than we've ever seen. I've, I've been on this earth 45 years and I've never seen the level of protest from all different shades and color and creeds of life like I've seen with this one. Unfortunately, we live in a high microwave society and we live in a very fast, I want it now, a race to who said it first society too. I'm not concerned about who said it first. I'm only concerned about who said it in an understandable way and who wants to make it right. And if it takes us six months to get a reply to some people that's been quiet, so be it, at least they came. Because I don't think we can afford now to alienate anyone. Because we're being, and we have to understand the difference between being outraged and being angry. Angry, you move with no, no sense of direction, no sense of, it's all emotion. Outrage means you're, you're very strategic about how you feel. And I think that's what we have to be. We have to be that way. But what we need to do or what somebody needs to do, I don't know, man. I guess the best thing they can do is educate the next generation. I don't even charge them to educate somebody who they may know that's white, that's a racist. That person is, there's no converting that person back, especially if they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s. Leave them where they are. Spend your time trying to corral the people that's like-minded of you and build that community instead of running around trying to chase people that we know that's not gonna change their minds. And this is on both sides. I mean, I'm a black man and I know there's a legion of black people that just don't trust white people at all and vice versa. But there's also a legion of people in the middle who want to get this right. So I'm, and is willing to be patient enough to take time to get it right, knowing it's not gonna be fixed in the two days or the three days or even a year after George Floyd has been killed. Ninth, when you draw that distinction between anger and outrage in the policy realm of cultural versus tangible political reparations, do you think that the focus is at all not misplaced, but maybe misdirected in the pursuit of demolishing statues, not, I think we all, you and I can agree that statues that commemorate the Confederacy ought to have come down at the end of the Civil War. When we talk about the newer movement to eradicate statues that are commemorating some of our founding presidents, that's a rich debate to have about the merit of honoring those figures who were slaveholders, whether right. it's Washington or, or Jefferson. But how, how do you assess that as part of the outrage compared to the outrage of decades of Jim Crow subjugation and economic disempowerment? And uh, do you think that the, the pie of outrage is uh, is effectively divvied up, or if more should be focused on the democratic reparation than 
or what we might call the political reparation than the cultural reparation. Yeah, you know, I, I try to trust in the leaders of, you know, the ones in the Democratic Party or whatever party. Like, I, for me, I just want to make sure that we have the right people in place to do what they need to do. Um, regardless of what, I do believe that we need to both of, we need to fix what's going on from a physical and a perception because people are saying, you know, people are saying that, you know, knocking down statues, what's that going to do? Well, it's going to do something for somebody because it's the perception that we have to understand. It's a, it's more symbolic than just knocking down a statue. You're basically trying to slowly but surely erase the erase a past um because some people believe knocking down statues is pointless and that's not going to change anything well it definitely changes a part of the thing is things that can change is the perception of things um regardless of what so as far as doing that i think we still need that because some people still need that quarter accomplishment and symbolism because everybody can't go to the Senate and sit and talk and ha listen to those conversations and and that, that type of stuff. I think doing it, knocking down, you know, Confederate soldiers, that's a part of symbolism that I think we visually need or visually like. But it, you're right, it's much more of a bigger conversation of what we need to fix and work on instead of just putting it all over here saying, oh, well, they knocked down some buildings and they wrote Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter on the street. And oh, it's so great. And, it, and, and to that person who thinks it's so great, we try to belittle it and say, well, they ain't doing nothing, but you don't, you don't know where that person's coming from. You don't know how that person is raised. And to see those letters on the street is probably something that person would never ever in their 60 years, 70 years, 30 years, 40 years, would even see. So that means a lot to that person, even if it doesn't mean something, anything to you, because you've done a lot of freedomness and, and done a lot of marching. To this person, it's brand new, so we shouldn't be able to judge that person and say, well, they're not going to do anything. Like, what's the point of knocking down statues? <clears throat> it's perception. It's perception, and to some people, it's a symbol. It's perception, and like you said, the, the symbolism can have much meaning in people's lives and, and how, they, how they learn. And, right. and you, you just made that astute observation. It's about capturing the consciousness at a certain stage of folks' lives that can be so formative and transformational. Right. Um, ninth, let me close by asking you about the movement from here. It, it has been surprising to some that Maybe it took this long to catalyze a lot of the energies around the movement since MLK, since John Lewis were at the forefront of American society. And 
some of these important issues on the modern day civil rights movement had been relegated to inconsequential um, and, and not a focal point. Now that they can be a focal point, um, how do you think folks can avoid being exhausted? Because when I, when I have asked a few folks on the podcast why we didn't see the natural succession of civil rights beyond the 60s and 70s, really, in, in the streets uh, with the same force, part of the answer was exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we overcome that exhaustion and, and maybe with this new rebirth of activism, not just keep it alive, but, but make some tangible progress from it? Make sure that we, we arm and prepare the next generation with the proper knowledge and information they need to continue the work. You know, my parents are 77 and 78 years old. They've seen exactly what I read a book about in books. They grew up in the American South in the 40s, 50s, 60s. That's that alone is, you know, when Emmett Till was killed, my killed, my dad was also 14. And, you know, I don't even talk about it that much to my mom because she is exhausted. She is. I'm not. My children are not. You know, a lot of people's kids are not exhausted. A lot of homies I know, they're not. They're not exhausted. Annoyed, yes. Exhausted, no. Because if I want to see exhausted, I just go talk to my parents. So, yeah, I don't, I don't. We just need to make sure our next generation is equipped with everything they need now. We have to pass that torch now to make sure they have everything they need to carry on to the next generation. Knife, you are always a paragon of wisdom and an inspiration to me and I know to so many of our listeners. Thank you for your work and thank you for joining me again today. Thanks, Alex, man. Appreciate you.